Would God ever deceive someone? The answer might surprise you. We have a deep, deep dive into how God operates today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor. I'm a minister and a meat eater. I grew up on a farm where we raised chicken and ate chicken. We raised cows and ate hamburger. We raised pigs and ate pork. We hunted deer and ate deer. Now, some farms have chickens that produce eggs— That's not what we did. We didn't raise chickens for eggs. We raised them for meat. Some farms have cows that produce milk, but that's not what we did. We didn't raise cows for milk. We raised them for meat. I like milk and eggs, but I like meat even more. I like bacon. I like sausage. I like cheeseburgers. And I like Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel 14 is one of those passages that is the thick meat of the Word of God, not the milk of the Word. And what do I mean by that? Well, I'm referring to something that's said in Scripture, uh, several places in Scripture, but one of them is Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So this verse says that there's different levels of biblical truth. Now, some of it is elementary, and it's just the basic stuff. It's the first principles that you'd want to teach someone of doctrine, and God's plan of salvation, Bible 101. But then there are some of the secondary things that you can get into, maybe delving into the more mechanical aspects of theology, things like um, soteriology in Romans, or eschatology in Revelation. Those are more like Bible 102. You wouldn't jump into them on day one if you're a new Christian, because um, they're, they're a step beyond the rudimentary basics. And then you have the things that are a step or two beyond that. Bible 301, Bible 401, Advanced Bible. That's what today's lesson is going to be. So you might have noticed I omitted some of the normal intro comments that I usually make. I usually say something like, if you're a new Christian or a veteran Bible reader, that's, that's usually what I say when I come on and introduce the show. But I didn't say that this time, because this is not an episode that I would just hand off to brand new Christians. <laughs> this episode is purely for those who are experienced with God's Word and are ready to learn a deeper truth. If you handed this chapter of Ezekiel off to someone who's inexperienced with the Bible and with the truths of Christianity, it would probably confuse them quite a bit. I mean, there's a lot of things in it that are hard to make sense of. This passage is controversial. And not because it's hard to understand. I think it's actually very easy to understand. But it it seems hard to square what's said in this passage with our traditional understanding of God. And that's why some scholars of the past, uh, like William Irwin, back in 1943, he just threw up his hands. He said Ezekiel 14 doesn't even belong in the Bible. He said it was too much in conflict with the rest of Scripture. But is that giving up a little bit too easily? I I would say so. I I think today I can show how Ezekiel 14 actually slots in perfectly in the Bible, and that the problem is that it, it, it actually doesn't conflict with the Bible. It conflicts with some of the preconceptions about God's nature and God's sovereignty that we bring to the table. So I, I think I've introduced the chapter well enough. Let's let's get into it. Who's ready for some meat? 
grab a fork and grab a Bible. Let's turn to Ezekiel 14 and be prepared to be challenged today. Ezekiel has been discussing prophets in the past couple chapters, and he mentions prophets in this chapter as well. But this chapter is not about prophets. This chapter is about idols of the heart. And you probably knew that if you saw the title of today's episode. So Ezekiel will mention prophets, but he's really trying to talk about how we can be deceived when we try to hear from God, but when we haven't first dealt with the idols in our hearts. And this applies to the prophets, but Ezekiel's going to apply it to everyone. So we'll start at verse 1 of Ezekiel 14. Then certain of the elders of Israel came and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet, I the Lord will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me, through their idols. Ezekiel is speaking to the Israelites. Now, it doesn't say whether this pertains to the Israelites just at the place where Ezekiel is living right now, or if it's talking about the Israelites back in Jerusalem. It just says the elders are sitting before him. But honestly, it doesn't matter because the words in this chapter, they apply to anybody at any time. Notice the phrase, idols into their hearts. And Ezekiel already did a chapter on idolatry, and that was back in chapter 7. And we talked about idolatry back there that those in Israel had built idol centers in the high places, and we related that to some of the literal idolatry that takes place even in churches today. But there's another type of idolatry that's not as literal or physical as building a statue, but a more spiritual type of adultery, uh, idolatry. And, and that's what takes place in the heart. And that's what Ezekiel's talking about in chapter 14. And, and it pertains more to modern times as well. This time, there's it's not talking about any shrines, or a specific false god. There's no false gods that are mentioned by name in this passage. Ezekiel simply mentions that there are idols in the heart. So I don't think this is about a certain type of false god. I think it's talking about those things within our hearts that become bigger than God, the things that become more important to us than God. And having an idol of the heart, that, that's something that can actually turn you against God. Um, in the New Testament, you sometimes hear mammon mentioned as, I think it's a god of money. Um, so I think, it, you know, it says in, so I can't remember where off the top of my head, but it, where Jesus said you can't serve God in mammon. Now, um, mammon is referring to the god of money, but you can make money into an idol without necessarily attaching a false deity to it, like mammon. You can make money into an idol without bowing down to a statue or, or worshiping it. Money can just be an idol of your heart. And this is what Ezekiel 14 is talking about. But it doesn't stop there. It goes a step beyond that if you come to God and you ask for a word from the Lord, if you're trying to be led by the Lord, God might answer you in accordance with your idol. Let me read verse 4 again. It says, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols. The, the New King James Version, it renders that last part. It says, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols. And if you're wondering what does that mean, it actually means that God will not necessarily tell you the truth. It means that God's going to answer according to your idol. 
God might just give you what you actually want. Which means God might not tell you the straight thing of what's best. He might not lead you to the straight what is best for you. If your idol is money, and then you come to God and you ask him to direct direct you in his plan for your life, it means God might not necessarily tell you what's best for you. He might send you to the job that makes more money, but is not necessarily God's best for your life. So this means you might say, um, you might come to God, you say, oh God, I want your plan for your for my life. I want your best for my life. But when you ask him that, if you have an idol of the heart, something like money, God might direct you to what you really want and not what and not actually give you his best for you. Now, some of you aren't going to like me saying that because it sounds like it sounds kind of like God would trick you or or not really give you what you're asking for. And and that basically that is what I'm saying. God will sometimes give you what you really want and not specifically what you're asking for. Now, we've we've all gone to God before and asked for his guidance, for his direction, and that's good to do. But we also have to make sure that our heart is in the right place whenever we ask God for help to make sure our motives are pure, to make sure we don't have idols in the heart. Because if we don't deal with our hearts first, we might not get the answer we're looking for. I think a better way to phrase it is this. We might get the answer we're looking for, but it won't be the answer that reveals God's best for you. It won't be what God wants. God might just give you what you want. And that's what this chapter is about. And it's going to get more explicit even more explicit later. We aren't there yet, but that's where we're going. Just FYI. So let me give you a key point today to help kind of to reorient ourselves to this idea. Key point number one today. Idols can be in the heart, not just physical. And I think we've covered that well enough um, in New Testament times, especially if if you live in a Western country like the USA. um, These are the types of idols that we need to watch out for. It's it's really going to be the idols in the heart most of the time. And then key point number two today, if you want to hear from God clearly, you have to deal with your idols because God will answer you in accordance with your idols. And like I said, not necessarily the truth, not necessarily what is best. God will give you the desires of your heart. If your heart is totally surrendered to God and his plan, then you'll get God and you'll get God's plan. But if your heart wants other things, God might just give you other things. Like God literally says coming up in verse 9 that he'll deceive you. If he, is de- if he is to deceive you directly or deceive you by having you get bad advice from someone, then God will redirect your life according to your idols rather than what is best. Look, I have known Christians and non-Christians, and you know they've decided what they want to do before they even ask your advice. They're like, they're, they're trying to choose between two jobs or, or they've already decided what to do. They're just kind of coming to you to rubber stamp what they actually want to do. And, and, you know, you can usually tell pretty quick, like, what they're going to do when someone comes to you for advice, regardless of what you say. It's kind of like they're running their plan by you under the guise that they're asking for advice, but they're not really asking for advice. They already know what they want. Um, You know, and and sometimes people come come to God with that attitude, or they come to a spiritual leader with that attitude. And God says, you know, you've already decided what you want to do. What does it matter what I say? Some Christians want to get a divorce, and they've already decided they're going to get a divorce. So they go to a spiritual leader for advice, and you know the leader might say, hey, are there any biblical grounds for this, any, any biblical reasons for this divorce? And, and a lot of times they'll say, not, not really, but I've just already decided that I'm leaving. Well, you know, at that point, nothing else really needs to be said. They're not going to listen to biblical advice. They've already decided that there's something else that they want to do. And guess what? 
you can find a pastor who will encourage you to get a divorce and do whatever makes you happy. Like, you know, you or you might have friends pressuring you to, to leave your spouse and just do whatever it takes to make you happy. So remember key point number two today. If you want to hear from God clearly, you have to deal with your idols. Now, if you're struggling with this notion that God would actually use deception, uh, I want to deal with that now. Because this is the the big hang-up I think a lot of people might have with what I'm saying. Perhaps the verse you're thinking of is Numbers 23, 19, where it says, God is not a man that he should lie. So I want to explain about that verse real quick. And that verse, it's a quotation from Balaam in the Old Testament, and he was a false prophet. Um, and Not that I'm saying that that quote is necessarily wrong. Uh, <laughs> God had actually misdirected Balaam in the chapter right before this. We're going we're gonna to look at that passage in, in a little bit. Uh, but this is a verse that's quoted a lot to talk about God being trustworthy. And 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 I, I, I'm not saying the verse is wrong, but I'm saying it doesn't actually have a great source where that quote comes from. And, and I'm not saying that God can't be trusted, okay? Not saying that at all. God is truth, and we should be honest people because God is truth, and we want to be like God. So, I mean, I'm all about truth, and I believe God is truth. But I th- here's something we got to remember with God is that God is bigger than us and he operates on a different level than we do. And there's going to be times that God might direct someone or manipulate a situation in a certain way to get what is the desired outcome for him. Uh, um, and and God, God might use sometimes what I'm going to call warfare tactics to get it done. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, there's an example in 1 Samuel 16. God sends Samuel the prophet to go find the next king of Israel. Israel is failing, and God wants Samuel to anoint the next king. And this next king is going to be David, you know, as you probably know. And so here's what it says happens as Samuel sets off in 1 Samuel 16, 2. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So if the prophet's coming to town, you know, that's going to get everybody's attention. Everybody wants to know what the prophet has to say, like why he would come to their town. So someone's sure to ask Samuel why he's showing up. So Samuel says, he says this to God, if I go and anoint another king and Saul hears about it, he's liable to kill me. So God says, just take a heifer and say that you're traveling for a sacrifice. Now that's not the main reason for Samuel's journey. So God kind of tells Samuel to use a little bit of a deceptive tactic. Is, is that fair to say? Um, perhaps it's true that Samuel could perform a sacrifice when he's there, but we all know that's not the real reason he's going. Now, maybe you're thinking, that doesn't sound like God to do something like that. Like, why would God say something like that? Well, I, I think there's a good explanation, because God is in a warfare scenario with Saul. Saul has made himself an enemy of God. So now God has to use warfare tactics against Saul. And it's okay to do that with your enemies. Uh, like, let's look at Exodus 1. Pharaoh had declared that all the Israelite babies were to be killed right after birth. You know, that that terrible, terrible thing that Pharaoh did. Uh, I think it was just the baby boys who were supposed to be killed. Um, but one thing has always stood out to me about that story. The midwives were supposed to kill the baby boys. And here's what it says in Exodus 1.17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the kings of Egypt, uh, or as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, 
because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. So to break in here, the midwives lied to Pharaoh. They didn't want to kill the baby boys. So they just say, oh, it was too late. We couldn't kill them in time. And then verse 20, this is what's always stood out to me. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. So it says there in verse 20 that God was pleased with the midwives for lying to Pharaoh. I mean, and God's going to say later in the book of Exodus, thou shalt not lie. (laughs) But here in chapter 1, God was pleased with the midwives for lying. And I'm just reading to you what the Bible says. You know, so if you're mad at me already, I don't know what to tell you. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. But here's my conclusion on this. Okay, let let me explain why I think God is okay with lying or using deceptive tactics in certain such situations. And, and just let me use an analogy from sword fighting. Okay, not, not that I'm a sword fighter, but I've read many books that include sword fighting. Um, te- okay, technically it was lightsaber fighting, but I, I think the vocabulary is actually pretty similar. In sword fighting, you sometimes use a move that's called a feint. Okay, that's spelled F-E-I-N-T. And it, you know, it sounds like fainting as in whenever you pass out, but it's spelled a little bit different. A feint in sword fighting, that's whenever you thrust or, or you move your sword in such a way so as to misdirect or mislead your opponent. It gives your opponent the impression that you're going to move one direction or in one way, but you actually move in the other. And if it works out, then you might get your opponent positioned in such a way that you can you have an opening to defeat him. That's how a feint works, okay? It's a form of deception. And now it's not un- unfair or immoral. I mean, it's part of how... It's part of how the game is played, you know, if you're fencing. That's how a sword fight works. You're trying to defeat an opponent, so it's okay you're allowed to trick them. And it's the same principle in a battle between two armies. You know, as armies are moving throughout the territory and and engaging in battle. You know, the generals, they're back in their tents, and they're surveying the whole landscape of the war, and they're deciding where to position their troops and so forth. And, And in the midst of this strategic positioning of the troops... Um, you know, sometimes you don't want the opposing army's generals to know exactly what you're doing. So you might be clever about how you position your troops. You might try to make the enemy overestimate how many troops you have if you want to scare them off. Or you might try to make the enemy underestimate how many troops you have if you want to um, entice them into some kind of trap. That's just how warfare works. You know, you got to use deception to win the war. There's an example in the Civil War, um, and I think the North and the South armies, they both, they both did this. They would make fake cannons out of logs, and they would do this to make the other side think that they had cannons when they actually didn't have cannons. So it would make an area look more heavily fortified. They, they, called this, they were called the Quaker guns. It was a type of warfare tactic. It's a military feint, okay? Now, let me just ask you, is that immoral? Is that, is that lying in the biblical understanding of the word? No, it's not, because you're in a conflict. It's okay to use feints and misdirections to trick your enemy, because there's times where it's going to be morally permissible to use deception. I'm not trying to sound edgy today. <laughs> this is why I I only wanted the spiritually mature Christians to tune in today. If you're a brand new follower of God, you know, and you're thinking about deception, let's just focus on thou shalt not lie. Like, let's just focus on how to be an honest person, okay? Because that's where you start. But I'm trying to t- kind of speak a little bit beyond that. Being a, a, There's a little bit of nuance to this, okay? So if you're a little bit more experienced in Christianity and thinking through moral issues, let's just ask ourselves a, a deeper question. Are there situations 
where lying or deception can be permitted, where God would even endorse it. Well, if we read the Bible closely, there certainly are. We see it in Exodus 1. Okay, I think if you or I were in the midwife's shoes, we would have felt justified in lying as well, because we know it's wrong for Pharaoh to try to have the Israelite baby boys killed. So we would try to save their lives. If you were in the Holocaust, and if you were, uh, you know, if you were like a, a German citizen, and you were hiding a Jew in your house, and the Nazis come knocking on your door, well, in that kind of situation, is it okay to lie and say you don't have any Jews at your house? I would say it certainly is. <laughs> you know, you don't have to pull out your Bible and be like, well, the Bible says do not lie. You know, I don't think it's that simple. Because the Bible says God dealt well with the midwives. So here is the principle I would say is in place for when God permits lying. I think it would be a, a situation in which someone is in conflict with God. Basically, we're talking a warfare scenario, okay? For example, at the time that God sent Samuel to anoint David king, um, and those were verses that I read earlier, let me actually go back. Let me read the first verse from that chapter. It says in 1 Samuel 16, 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So at this point, God had already rejected Saul. And that was because Saul had rejected God first. It's like Saul had already rebelled against God previously. Saul has already made himself an enemy of God. So I would say Saul is in a conflict scenario in regards to um, his relationship with God. Samuel is still on God's side. So God permits Samuel to deceive in 1 Samuel 16 because telling the truth would compromise his mission, which was to anoint David. And God was okay with the midwives being deceptive in Exodus 1 because Pharaoh had set himself up as an enemy of God and he was trying to use population control on God's people. So um, we see that God's okay with using deception in some instances, like a warfare scenario, like a conflict scenario. Now, we have to be really careful about this. Um, you know, we can't just, I'm not trying to give you license to just lie <laughs> whenever you feel like you can justify it because our hearts can deceive themselves, okay? So if, if we want to, if we, if we try hard enough, we can find a justification to lie, it, you know, it, it, in just about any situation. So be careful about this, all right? The times where it's morally permissible to lie, they're going to be rare and, and they're going to be specific. So don't make that kind of decision based on emotions, okay? Be guided by principles here, like the ones I'm giving you today. If you have to lie to save a life, that's probably okay. If you have to lie to get the senior discount at Denny's, then that's going to be a harder one to justify. Now, there's a greater point to be made in Ezekiel 14 about God answering according to the idols of the heart. And we're going to get back to that. Um, but today, I'd like to develop this matter of God using deception against his enemies a little bit further. Um, there's a story that's really confusing for a lot of people. It's in Numbers 22 through 25. It's the story of Balaam the prophet. Now, that story is confusing because Balaam seems to be kind of a bad man. And yet, he's a prophet who actually does deliver some messages from God. And then the New Testament calls him a false prophet. So it's kind of like, can you trust what Balaam says or not? You know, Balaam's Balaam's status as a false prophet, I don't think it's really about the content of his messages. It seems to be more based on his lifestyle, his character, uh, the idols of his heart. So if, if you're not familiar with this story, there's this evil 
king of Moab. His name is Balak. And he comes to Balaam and he offers Balaam a bunch of money if Balaam will go put a curse on Israel. Now, Balaam really wants that money. But uh, he, as you read the story, Balaam goes up on a mountain to pronounce this curse and God won't allow Balaam to do it. Like they try it three times. Every time Balaam op- opens his mouth to do a curse, a blessing comes out instead. And so that that's a very condensed version of his story. Like there's a lot more details we could get into. Uh, so, hey, I said we're the advanced Bible readers today. Okay, so I'm going to assume you're already familiar with the details. I want to look at the beginning of the story in Numbers 22. And this is when the men came from King Balak with all his money, uh, or with, yeah, with all this money to give to Balaam. And he asked Balaam if he would go curse Israel. And so Balaam says, the first time he says, let me pray about it. And then Balaam goes and asks God, and this is what God says in Numbers twenty two twelve. God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So as you read that, I, I think it couldn't be more clear. <laughs> it couldn't be more clear what God wanted. God said, don't curse Israel. I don't care how much money they're offering you, Balaam. Don't go out there and curse Israel. So Balaam says, okay. And he sends the men from King Balak away. But eventually the men come back and they come back with even more money. And they ask Balaam once again, if he'd be willing to curse the Israelites. So Balaam thinks it over. He says, um, he says, well, let me pray about it again. Now, right there, that was Balaam's problem. He had already prayed about it. God had already said no. But when the men come back and they offer even more money, well, now Balaam's like, hmm, let, let me pray about it again. Now, Balaam doesn't really need to pray about it because God had already been extremely clear. God had already said that Israel is not to be cursed. So Balaam already knew what God wanted. But Balaam wanted that money because Balaam desired wealth. So so he says, let me pray about it one more time. Now, this time, whenever he prays about it, God actually gives a different answer. Because this time, God answers Balaam according to the idol in Balaam's heart. Because Balaam wants something more than just God's approval, Balaam wants that money. Numbers 22.20, it says, And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, Rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went. Let me stop there. Because this is where a lot of people get confused. They're like, wait, why is God mad at, at Balaam when God had just told Balaam to go? So a lot of people get confused about that. (laughs) And they think God appears schizophrenic. And it used to confuse me too. But listen, let me clarify it, okay? First, he tells Balaam to stay. Then he tells Balaam to go. Then he gets mad because Balaam went. How does this make sense? Well, it makes sense whenever we incorporate what we learn about God from Ezekiel 14. God answers our prayers in accordance with the idol of our heart. Remember, key point number one again, idols can be in the heart, not just physical. And key point number two again, if you want to hear from God clearly, you have to deal with your idols. Balaam had an idol of money in his heart. He was a prophet. He was he was blessed with this intimate connection with God, okay? I don't think Balaam probably worshipped false gods. I think Balaam knew the one true God. But Balaam loved something else more than God, and that was money. So his heart was divided. And when he prayed and asked God what to do, God answered, the second time, God answered by leading Balaam to go after the thing that his heart truly desired rather than doing the thing that God wanted. 
Okay, let me read Ezekiel 14.4 again. And any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols. Because God knew that Balaam didn't really want to do what God wanted. God had already made his will known. So God said, okay, go after that money. Go up on that mountain. Let's see what happens. And then whenever Balaam went, then God gets mad. Because Balaam's not actually doing what God had told him clearly before. So if you want to hear from God clearly, you got to deal with your idols. All right? And God's not schizophrenic. I mean, he's the same God all through Scripture. So if you think I'm (laughs) attacking God's character today by pointing out that sometimes he uses deception against his enemies— I'm not trying to attack God's character. I'm actually, what I'm trying to do is reveal his character. Ezekiel 14, it makes makes some kind of audacious statements about God. And, And as I said before, some Bible scholars really don't like this chapter. They think Ezekiel 14 was some kind of fluke, that it doesn't even belong in the Bible. But what I'm trying to show today, God in Ezekiel 14, he's behaving the same way all throughout scripture. And, and I would say up to today. So let's finally get back into Ezekiel 14 now. Let's pick it up at verse 6. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself, and I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut off and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 9, key verse today. And if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. Now, verse 9 right there, that's the real kicker for a lot of people. God says that if you have an idol in your heart, and then you go to a prophet for advice, God says, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. So God's saying, I might give you some really bad advice. I might put a lie in that prophet's mouth and give you an answer according to your idol rather than the truth. Now, that's a kind of a hard pill to swallow for many of us, that, that God would be willing to deceive someone. Like, why would God do this? Well, because God already knows that these people have idols in their hearts. And and they're in, like I said before, they've made themselves enemies of God. They're in this conflict scenario with God, this warfare scenario. They're not going to be willing to listen to what God has to say. So God's saying that when someone comes to a prophet seeking advice from God on something, if God knows that they've already made up their mind, that they just want to do their own thing and that they're not going to listen to God anyway— then God's not even going to bother telling them the right answer. God will just let them hear what they want to hear. God won't give them a true prophet and a false prophet and then, you know, give them an opportunity to hear the truth. God will just give them the wrong answer and nothing else. Now, here's an analogy that explains why God would do this. Imagine you're eating breakfast and you're having sausage and bacon and sliced apples, okay? And then your dog comes in and just stares at you. (laughs) Like if any of you... If any of you listening have a dog, you know this is exactly what happens whenever you sit down for a meal, your dog just comes in and stares at you, you know, wanting you to feed him or waiting for some crumbs to fall, you know, just just sitting there with the sad eyes and begging for a piece of the meal. 
So let's say you give in, you set some of your food down on the floor. Um, you set some of the sausage and, and bacon and the apples. You set them on the floor. Well, you know what the dog's going to do. It's going to go for the sausage and the bacon, but it's not going to care about the apple slices because dogs aren't after that. Okay, dogs are like me. Dogs like meat, all right? They don't care about apple slices. So you do that. The next day, the same thing happens. You eat the same meal. You give the dog the same options. It eats the meat. Day after day, you eat the same breakfast, you share it with the dog, he never touches the apple slices because dogs don't care about apple slices. It goes against their nature to eat apples. Dogs, you know, they'll eat meat, but not apples. So eventually, you just start putting some of the meat on the floor and you just keep the apple slices to yourself. Does the dog care about that? No, because the dog didn't want the apple anyway. The dog just wants the meat. Now, here's a question. Could we say that you've infringed on the dog's free will by taking away the apple slices choice and just only giving it meat? You know, have, have you done something against the dog by, by doing that? Well, I think we'd all agree that we are not because we just know what the dog actually wants. Okay. We know the dog only wants meat anyway. So I don't think anybody out there would say that we have now infringed on the dog's rights by only giving it the meat and just keeping the apple to ourselves because we know it doesn't want the apple anyway. Well, let's apply this to what we're talking about today. I think sometimes God just tells people what they want to hear because he knows that they would reject the truth even if he did bother to tell them. Remember, God knows everything. He knows even what we would do in a certain situation. So God already knows what the Israelites would do even if they did know the truth. He knows that they would just reject it because they're so their hearts are so rebellious. They have idols of the heart. So God doesn't even send them a true prophet and a false prophet anymore. He says, I'm just going to give you the false prophet. A message of hope rather than the true message of destruction. He's just going to give them what they want, not what they need. As John Bevere said it, if we really desire or covet something and God has communicated his will on the matter, whether through his word or in prayer, and yet we still desire it, God will often give it to us, even if he knows it is not best for us, and that we will ultimately be judged for it. That's a quote from John Bevere right there. It applies so well in this chapter. Uh, I'm going to finish out this chapter. Let me pick it up. I'm going to read verse 9 again, because I want to tie all this together. Uh, actually, we're not going to finish out the chapter. We're going to finish out the verses for today. We're only reading half the chapter today. The second half of the chapter is about something totally different. But let me read verses 9 through 11. And we'll talk about that, and then we'll move towards the end today. So, Ezekiel 14, 9. And if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him, and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they shall bear their punishment, the punishment of the prophet, and the punishment of the inquirer shall be alike, that the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, declares the Lord God. So, you know, as if this chapter wasn't complex enough, and I hope I've exp explained it well to you today. <laughs> like, I hope you've been tracking with me. Um, and if you didn't catch it all the first time, um, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. I'm tried to, I really tried to work hard on this lesson because it's, it's a very nuanced piece of scripture. And so if you didn't catch it all the first time, um, you know, I'm sorry. Dr try listening again. Sometimes I have to listen to a sermon or a Bible teaching two or three times you know, if they're really deep, I have to listen a few times. 
um, just to catch everything they're saying. There's many v- sermons I've revisited again and again, and which is a benefit of being a Christian in this modern age. Um, you know, 10 years ago, you could buy a CD of a sermon. Now they're available on podcasts. They're available online on the internet. So um, one of the benefits is we can re-listen if we didn't catch everything the first time. So listen to this episode again if you didn't quite catch everything. Uh, but let me get back to this. Where was I? Oh, yeah, this chapter was already complex enough. But then right here, God adds another wrinkle to it. God says he will deceive the prophet and give the prophet a false message if they have, if the people asking have idols in their hearts. But then God also says this, and I'm going to punish you for believing the false message. God says he'll give the false message and then punish the people for believing it. So that brings us to our third key point for today. The person responsible for you is you. Okay, despite all that's been said, despite that God would use deception against people and send a false message through a prophet, God said you're still responsible for it because the person responsible for you is you. You can't blame the prophet. And a lot of people question, how can that be fair? How is that fair in this situation? That God would punish people for believing the false prophet that he sent. But I just want you to remember the analogy with the dog. God already knows what the people want, just like you already know that your dog wants your sausage and bacon, that your dog couldn't care less about your apple slices? Well, God knows that the people, he knows what they want. He knows the rebellion in their hearts. And so God says he will punish the people for believing the false message that he sent just because it was in their hearts in the first place to desire a false message. Uh, the, the scholarly term for this is called divine, de- divine deceit or sometimes divine deception. And academically, It sounds really bad (laughs) to say that God would deceive someone. But when you think about it in these real life situations or these biblical situations to where it could apply, it makes a lot more sense. Like I've already given you a few examples and and we're going to go through some more in the application section. But I want to highlight a couple here from scripture. Um, Jeremiah 410. Actually, Jeremiah questions God about this. He says, he says, why would you send a deceptive message to the people? And, And on that chapter, God doesn't explain why. Um, it, here in Ezekiel 14, he does. Um, but I think we also, there's a better case study on this issue in 1 Kings 22. This is a very eye-opening chapter for a lot of people. This is back when Ahab was king of Israel. Uh, actually, this chapter is about two kings. It's about Ahab and Jehoshaphat. And so I know this lesson's going to run long today. Um, on my recording here, it says I'm already at about 40 minutes long. And that's usually the like the regular length of an episode. I know I'm going extra long today and I didn't want to split this lesson up into two parts because I just feel like this, this content is so worth understanding if you really want to dig in and understand God and how he operates better. And one of the best chapters to do that is first Kings 22. So this is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible and it explains God's sovereignty and it, and it explains how that works in conjunction with man's free will. And it also helps us to understand some of these thorny issues that are right here in Ezekiel 14. So if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Kings 22. And um, and we're going to start at verse 5. Okay, so this is where Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they're these two kings. And um, Ahab's referred to a lot in this as the king of Israel, but this is talking about King Ahab. As you probably know, he's one of the really bad, really evil kings. Okay, and Jehoshaphat, if I remember right, he was a pretty good guy. So they're they're talking about going to battle together against um uh, I can't I think I want to I want to say Moab they're talking about going up to battle 
And Jehoshaphat's saying, why don't we ask the prophets first? Why don't we check with the prophets and see how they say that this that this battle is going to turn out? If you hear a little bit of yelling in the background, um, my, I can hear my toddler <laughs> upstairs. I'm recording down in, in my basement studio again, and uh, I can hear my toddler running around up there. So I'm sorry if there's some background noise. Uh, he just gets to be a guest on the podcast today. So anyway, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, this is 1 Kings 22, 5, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, shall I go battle against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And they said, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not here another prophet of the Lord? of whom we may inquire. And the king of Israel, and that was Ahab, he said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah the son of Imlah. So, just to recap there, Jehoshaphat's like, Let's ask the prophets before we go into battle. Let's let's ask the prophets how this is going to turn out. And all the prophets just give the, the they, they tell Ahab what Ahab wants to hear. Oh yeah, you're going to do great out there in battle Ahab. You're going to you're going to be successful. Jehoshaphat is still a little bit suspicious cuz like I said, he's a pretty good a good guy, a good king. He says, "Is there a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire?" He knows that these guys are probably not speaking for the Lord. And Ahab says, well, yeah, there's this one prophet. Oh, I hate his guts. Because he always says negative stuff. <laughs> and, and Micaiah is that guy. And Micaiah does say a lot of negative stuff to Ahab because Ahab's a bad dude. But um, Micaiah happens to be right in the stuff that he says. So we're going to skip ahead in the chapter. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And we had come to the king, when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to the Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And when, when Micaiah says this, he's being like ultra sarcastic in the way that he says it. He's like, oh yeah, go on up there. You'll do great. He's being like really sarcastic when Ahab asks how he'll do. So it says, but the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? <laughs> so Ahab says, I know you're lying, Micaiah. Tell me what God really said. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? So Micaiah gives a negative. He says, well, I think Israel's going to be without a king pretty soon if you go into this battle. So basically implying that Ahab is going to die. And Ahab's, Ahab just turns to Jehoshaphat. See, I told you this guy would only say something negative. <laughs> he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. So I, I laugh because I just love this story. I just I visualize it playing out. It just cracks me up. And Micaiah said, back to the verses, Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. And Micaiah is going to say, I saw what was going on in heaven 
when, when God was talking about this, I heard what God said. So Micaiah had been given this vision. And here's what Micaiah says. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he, which is God, and he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. So I'll stop reading there. This is what Micaiah said. God is sitting before his divine council up in heaven. Okay. God has a board of directors up in heaven, in case you didn't know. And, and, you know, in all honesty, the reality of what goes on in heaven is probably a lot different than what you'd imagine. And we need to go into that someday on this podcast. That's too big of a subject to get into today. But um, one thing that you see if you look closely in the Bible is God actually doesn't just sit on his throne and decide everything unilaterally. There are these spirits or these heavenly beings who are assigned various territories covering the whole earth. And whenever God wants to do things, God has a staff meeting with these heavenly beings, basically. So, I mean, if you think I'm making this up, this is what we just read. It's one of those heavenly staff meetings. So God lays out the game plan, the gameplay to them. He says, I would like to draw Ahab into a conflict at Ramath Gilead. And that's where Ahab is going to die. And so God tells them, that's what I want. Now, how are we going to get there? And it said, one spirit said one thing and another spirit said another. And finally, one comes and says, I'll go down and be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets and direct him to this place, direct him to this conflict. And God says, hey, I like that idea. And God sends the lying spirit down into the mouth of Ahab's prophets. Now, why? Why would God do this? Well, Ahab was this wicked, evil king, and God's ready for Ahab to die. Okay? God is in a conflict warfare scenario with Ahab. And so this is what God does to him. He deceives him to go out into this battle. And then, boom, if you finish out the chapter, it all plays out just as God wanted. And I love that whole story because this is what it does. It shows us what's going on up in heaven and how that influences the events that are going down here on earth. It shows how God is in control of all things. Like God is sovereign. And yet, you know, down here on earth, man is still really in control and responsible for all his own choices. God has divinely decreed that Ahab was to die. So it sounds like Ahab has lost control. But Ahab never would have been in that situation in the first place if he just wasn't this lousy, awful person. Like, Ahab is a jerk. <laughs> Even all throughout this story, he's going he's gonna to die. He's still a jerk. And frankly, I don't feel too sorry for him. God uses divine deceit to bring about Ahab's death. And God used a divine deceit as an act of punishment against the Israelites in Ezekiel's day because they had idols in their hearts. So I know we've already covered a lot so far today, uh, but I have to ask one more question. Would God still behave this way toward us, to those who are alive, to, you know, in the here and now? Would God use divine deceit as an act of judgment in these modern times, in these New Testament times? 
Well, that's what we're going to discuss on our last segment for today. Well, we'll close down in a few minutes with a quick recap and some personal application of this chapter. Uh, If you have a question on anything from today, I I imagine you probably would, (laughs) you know, especially if if I've made any errors in my explanations. Feel free to send a question. Um, I hope you've been tracking with me, like I said before. But if you you want any follow-up, just leave a comment or shoot us an email. Our email is crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. I put that in the show notes too. Try to make it easy if you just want to shoot us an email. I'd be happy to take questions or or comments, recommendations on subjects that you think I should tackle in the future. Like if you want to hear more about the divine council and God's heavenly staff meetings and all that, hey, that's something I would love to get into. Like that's a, that's a topic I love talking about and studying about. So we'll get into it if you want to. Uh, for the next time on this podcast, I actually have a really special episode next time around. Um, special guest coming on the show. His name is Daniel Moore. He's a a fellow podcaster. He has a show called Connecting the Gap. And I think you can probably find it all the places that you can find this podcast and and plus more. Uh, Connecting the Gap is also a Bible study podcast. It's so similar to mine. It has has a lot of emphasis on Bible prophecy. And and so he's going to be on the next episode. We are going to discuss 10 reasons to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. You know, the rapture is one of those things that's controversial among Christians. And I'd say good Christians can disagree. Now, some believe in a rapture before the seven-year tribulation. Some believe in a rapture after. Some believe in a rapture halfway through. Some don't believe in a rapture at all. Um, I do believe in a rapture, and I believe it'll be before the tribulation kicks off. And Daniel Moore is going to be here next time to give us 10 reasons why that is. So make sure you tune in for that. It's going to be a very special episode. Let's recap for today. We covered the first half of Ezekiel 14. God points out that the Israelites have idols in their hearts. Now, again, no false gods are mentioned in this chapter. This is talking about things in our hearts that become more important to us than God. So not the physical idols that people would bow down to. Idols in the heart. Money. Security. Materialism. People. Man's opinion. All these kind of things became more important to some of the Israelites than even God was. And the consequence of this is that it's going to prevent them from receiving God's truth for their lives. So this is a major problem. You know, if you ask God for help, and yet you have idols in your heart, God said in verse 4 that he'll answer your question according to the idols of your heart. God said in verse 9, if you go to a prophet, if you go to someone and ask for guidance, God might just deceive that prophet. So this all means that God might just give you what you want, even if it's bad for you, if you have an idol in your heart. Now, again, maybe you say, that doesn't sound like God. You can find examples of that all around Scripture, if, if you look hard enough. First um, Samuel 8. I'm Actually, let me back up. You don't have to look hard. It's just everywhere. <laughs> it's all over the place. First Samuel 8, the people want a king. God said he didn't want the people to have a king, that he wanted Israel to trust in him to select the leader for each generation. But people said they wanted a king. So God gave them a king, and then they got Saul. So see, sometimes God answers according to the idols of your heart. And when, we're, when we're not trusting in him whole, wholeheartedly. Okay, no pun intended, but I think a lot about that verse, uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. That's one of my favorite verses in scripture. I think I'm I'm pretty good about doing in the, the last part about um there it said three things to do if you want God to lead you and to guide you. Okay, for him to make your path straight, okay? For him to make the way clear for you. There's three things you got to do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, that's one. Two is lean not on your own understanding, that's number 2. And then three was in all your ways acknowledge him. And I think I'm pretty good about that one. I pray about I try to pray about everything. You know, I try to ask I try to pray every day and keep God constantly in my thoughts and ask him to bless the decisions I make. That's a good thing to do. I, you know, obviously that's a good thing to do, but you, you got to also remember the first two parts. Number one there, trust in the Lord with all your heart. If you're not trusting in the Lord with all your heart, then it doesn't really matter if you're praying to him for guidance. Cause, cause the Ezekiel 14 says he might answer you according to what's really in your heart. If it's not trusting in him, if it's desiring something else, putting your trust in something else, then he might answer you according to that. So don't just ask God for help. Search your heart first. Make sure your heart's in the right place, that your motives are in the right place. We looked at this, you know, really in detail with the example of Balaam in Numbers 22 and also with Ahab in 1 Kings 22. Uh, Balaam wanted money. So when the people offered him a bunch of money to pronounce a curse over Israel, then God told, God told Balaam to go, even though God didn't actually want Balaam to go. And in 1 Kings 22, I, Ahab had just basically already decided he was going into battle. And, you know, he was going to do it regardless of what the prophets said. So God put a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets. And that led to Ahab getting killed in battle. Now, was that unfair of God? Well, no, because God was giving Ahab what Ahab wanted. Like Ahab wanted feel-good messages that just made him feel um, confident in himself and what he wanted to do. So he wanted to listen to the false prophets. So since Ahab wanted deception, God gave Ahab deception. Three key points today. I don't, I don't want you to forget these. These will help you reorient your thinking around what Ezekiel 14 is telling us. Key point one, idols can be in the heart not just physical. Key point two, if you want to hear from God clearly, you have to deal with your idols. And key point three, the person responsible for you is you. And that last point there, that's because God has also said that if you allow yourself to be deceived, then you're still going to be held responsible for believing the deception. Because the problem is the idol of your heart, and that has led you to reject the truth and and to follow after what you want. So a few minutes ago, I posed this question. Is God still like this in the New Testament times? Like, would God give someone a deception even today? Well, the truth is, um, yeah, God has not changed. You find this idea all through the New Testament as well. Uh, speaking about the tribulation period, 2 Thessalonians says in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked de- deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So that's speaking specifically about a future time period. It's talking about how the Antichrist is going to deceive people into following him. But but we see that God sends the people a delusion to believe the Antichrist. Now, why would God do that? Well, it said, 
because they refused to love the truth. They rejected God, so God gives them what they want. He sends them a delusion to make them stupid enough to follow the Antichrist instead of God. The Antichrist, I guess this is what I read on this. The Antichrist is going to be such an obvious bad guy that it will apparently take a delusion to even follow after him. And, and that's actually a pretty good tell, I would say, even for today. When someone has an idol of the heart, when something is so obviously bad, and yet they can't see it. And they, they just want to act like, oh, well, that's a gray area, or that's something that, you know, it's permissible, God's okay with it. When it's obviously bad, that's an indicator to me that they're deceived, that even God might be deluding them. Romans 1, verses 18 and 19, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. And then verse 24, if we skip down, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Part of God's wrath is giving people a deception. And, and why is that? Well, in, in those verses, it said it's because of the lust of their hearts, the idols of their hearts. This is sometimes called the abandonment wrath of God. And, and I guess that's okay um, to call it that, but God is not just abandoning them to go after the evil thing they desire. God actively gives them the evil thing that they desire. So when we pray, when we talk to God, Remember to check your motives. We need to check our hearts. We need to make sure that we aren't asking for something selfishly or for impure motives. And the idea that Ezekiel 14 also brings into this is that even if you go to a spiritual leader and ask for their advice, if you don't have pure motives, if you have an idol of the heart, then even God might not give that spiritual leader the right wisdom for your situation. God said in Ezekiel 14, I'll deceive the prophet that you go to. So we have to check our hearts. Or we'll be in a situation like Matthew 15, 14. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. That was Jesus right there. 2 Timothy 4, uh, verses 3 and 4. It says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. If you desire to sin, you can find a teacher who claims to be a Christian and even claims to be a pastor many times and yet endorses sin. You can find it. That's why I was saying a few episodes ago that the Bible is a dangerous book. If you want to do wrong, God knows your heart. I mean, he'll even put someone into your path that will tell you the wrong thing to do. Why would God do that? Because you'll be like the dog who doesn't care about apples. If you reject the apple enough times... God stops putting it out there as an option. Let me quote from, I'm going to read from John Bevere again. He says this in his book, Killing Kryptonite. Many professing Christians only want to hear words that make them feel good. And because of covetousness and the fear of man, many ministers are willing to only speak words that encourage their followers. In these cases, all the sweet words sound wonderful, but they are lacking and will lead both leaders and followers to an undesirable place. We need to hear the truth, even if it hurts at first. No matter how painful it is to hear the truth, it is far less painful than the hardship we run toward when we live in deception. 
you can be a person who pursues truth. So let's talk about that as we close down. How can we be a person that pursues truth? Because as I studied this passage, I kind of got scared. (laughs) I know sometimes I ask God for things with selfish motivations. Like I tell God what I want and when I want it. And sometimes, you know, it's more based on what I want than on a heart that's totally submitted to him. So, you know, I read Ezekiel 14. That made me question myself on a lot of things. Uh, I've been meditating on this passage literally for a few weeks. I've taken a, um, I'd gotten a little bit ahead on producing these episodes. So I'm recording this here. Actually, at the end of September is when I'm recording this. Uh, But I have taken a few weeks to work on just this passage because it's a heavy passage. I've been trying to meditate on it, make sure that I understand it the right way. Um, and that I'm not miscommunicating anything to you because this passage deals with a big problem. Now, I'm thankful I'm saved. I'm not worried about my salvation, but I don't want to just be saved. Like, I want God's best for my life. So as I pray for God's direction and God's leading and God's guidance, it's very possible that my own desires could get mixed in with that and that I could pray for something that's not what God wants for me, that I could get more concerned with building the kingdom of Luke, rather than building the kingdom of God. And I don't want to miss what God has because I'm just too attached to what I want. So maybe you heard this message message today from Ezekiel 14. And maybe it bothered you a little bit. And I kind of hope it did. Like, I hope that we learn about something like this and, and get a little bit bothered by it. And that we ask ourselves when I pray, am I really praying to get myself on God's plan? Or am I just trying to get God to go along with my plans. Like whenever I pray the right way, I usually know I've prayed right because I walk away just trusting that however God works it out, that it's going to work out. But I also know that I don't always pray right. Like sometimes I just, you know, to be honest, sometimes I just have an idea of something that I want and I just pray about it. And that's not, that's not always right. That, you know, that could mean that I have an idol of the heart to deal with. So we got to watch ourselves that whenever we pray, that we, that we have the right motivations. If you heard a little bit of sound in the background, I, my, my toddler was playing with the vacuum up there. I had to ask him to turn it off. So anyway, um, let me get back to what I was saying. I told him I was almost done. I really am almost done today. But I've just introduced a problem. And I don't want to have you turn off this podcast today without solving that problem. You know, so what I was just saying, sometimes I come to God and I'm praying for things and I might have an idol of the heart to deal with. And so that's a problem to watch out for. Um, so what's the solution to that? You know, you want to know how to ask for things from God without being double-minded, without having a divided heart. So I have some solutions for you today as well. And here's what I would say. My advice would be to accept the Lord's will before you hear it. Now you heard me right. (laughs) Accept the Lord's will before you hear it, before you pray, before you ask for wisdom. Before you ask God for anything, you have to settle in your heart that you will obey whatever God says just because you know that God is always good and you know God's will is best. So if you say, well, you know, I'll do whatever God says unless God tells me to do blank, you know, fill in the blank right there. Well, if that's your attitude, then that means whatever's in the blank is your God. You know, you say, I'll do whatever God says unless he tells me to break up with my boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, if that's what, if that's true, then that relationship is an idol in your life. 
And and I bring that up because romantic relationships, that's one of the easiest things to turn into an idol. And, and also one of the quickest ways that someone's life will get off track. So, you know, if you say, hey, I'll do whatever God says, unless he tells me to give away this or that. You know, if you wouldn't give away something, even if God told you to, then that thing is an idol for you. It could be materialism. It's, a, it's an idol of the heart. Maybe you have a fear of man. You know, and God says, go pray for that person. Go witness to that person. And you're like, okay, God, but, you know, I'll just pray for them from over here. Hey, fear of man, that can be an idol of the heart. And it's something that we have to destroy. So if you have an idol of a relationship or, or a job or a money or a fear of man, then and then whenever you, whenever you go to pray and know God's will about something, um, I think I know what James would say, that that person was not supposed that he will receive anything from the Lord. It says that in James chapter 1. Because we have a divided heart, a divided mind. And that's not what God wants us to have whenever we go to him and ask for things. So, so how can we hear from God? Well, as I said, determine within yourself to follow God's will before you even know what God's will is. Doesn't mean you have to be happy about it. Okay, lots of people in the Bible, they did things that they didn't enjoy. But they were still blessed because they did what God said anyway. So, so your attitude is important. You know, don't get me wrong. But whenever it comes to obedience, don't wait for your attitude to be right before you obey. Okay? Just obey. When Samuel was a little boy, and the Lord called to him in, in the night, and all Samuel heard was his name. But when Samuel said, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, then God gave Samuel the rest of the message. And I think that word Lord is so important right there. Because what, what does Lord mean? It means that God is in charge. It means I'll do what you say. You got to accept the Lord's will before you hear it. It's right there in the Lord's prayer, right at the beginning. We're supposed to say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You see, prayer is not ultimately about trying to get God to do our plan. Prayer is about getting on God's plan. So it's okay to ask things in prayer, but just remember everything that we ask, it's filtered through this statement that we make at the beginning of the prayer. That ultimately what we want is God's will. So we're saying, God, if there's anything I ask today that's really not in your will, your will be done, not mine. You know, earlier I said, there's a danger whenever we ask God for things while we have an idol of the heart. Because then God might give us a lesser thing than what his perfect plan is. Because God answers according to our idols. So we might ask for one thing. And God says, you know, I really wanted to give you all this other stuff, but, you know, or I really had a better mate picked out for you, or I really had a better job picked out for you. I really had a better house picked out for you, but I guess I'll just answer according to your idol. So that's why it's so dangerous whenever you have an idol of the heart. You, what you might do is you might give up God's best because you're telling God what you just want right now. But there's a flip side to that. Whenever we ask for God's help and we have no idols, when, whenever we're just sold out to God, Whenever we have no idols, then, then God might answer our prayer. Or even, God might give us something better than what we asked for. God might have an even better idea than what you can come up with. That's whenever we get into Ephesians 3.20 territory, where Paul says, God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ask or think. That's where I want to be. Like, I don't want God to just do whatever Luke says. 
Because God can come up with better things than Luke. So I tell God what Luke wants, but if I'm praying right, I'm praying with a heart that's committed to God's will above my own will. So then God can do better things than what I could think up. Uh, let me give you a practical example as we close down today. Uh, so I preached at a church this morning, and I, I was filling in for one of my pastor friends. And I hadn't preached for a few months. Um, so anyway, I'd just been praying over my message for the past week. But if I can just, you know, if I can just be real with you guys um, as we close down. And hey, if you're still listening, <laughs> let me just say thanks for hanging in there today. I know this was a long one. Probably my longest episode ever. Um, but I appreciate you hanging in here. So anyway, I've been praying over my message. And I and what honestly, what I've been asking for God, it's just please don't let me flop when I go to speak at this church. You know, just to be honest, that was my prayer. If I can just be real with you. I was like, God, please help me to not embarrass myself. Now, frankly, as I had been praying, I, I had not quite felt the Holy Spirit's presence as I prayed this week. And and the reason, you know, I just chalked that up to the fact that I'm so out of routine, I haven't preached for a few months. So I'm like not in the swing of things. And I just thought that's all it was. But anyway, I was praying yesterday about this message. And I was going over my notes again. And I said, you know, I don't think I'm praying with the right motivation. <laughs> yeah. Which I know it sounds obvious to say it now. But all week long, I just, I don't know, I was like afraid I would embarrass myself when I went to speak at this church because it was a crowd I didn't know. And so I didn't I didn't know my audience as well. And I was like, oh, what if I they don't click with my sense of humor or whatever? I'm so here I am praying that I don't embarrass myself. And I'm and then I had this realization yesterday. I'm like, when I'm praying that I'll do a good job at filling in at this church, I I don't think my heart's actually desiring me to pray that because I just want to glorify God. I think my heart's a little bit more worried about me. Like, I think I'm actually praying to do a good job because I don't want to look bad. And then this verse came to me. It was Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So that when I, th- I started meditating on that verse, and I that changed my attitude. I thought, you know, maybe I should just pray that God uses this message I'm going to deliver to build his kingdom. And that should really be my only motivation. And then whether I look good or whether I look bad, as long as God's kingdom is built, like that's what I'm here for. So that's why I started praying. I said, God, use this Sunday to build your kingdom. And, and, and I'm just thankful to be used in that. Okay, I'm thankful I have a platform to speak, but it's not about me. It's about God. And if I'll just focus on that, then God will meet any other needs that I have. I heard a pastor say recently, if you will concern yourself with God's business, then God will concern himself with your business. That's what Matthew 6, 33 says. Then all these things will be added to you. So I started praying that way. I started praying that I would do a good job, not so that I would look good, but so that God would look good. And when I started praying that way, I mean, it's like a light switch flipped. I just I just felt the Holy Spirit's touch as I prayed. I felt his presence flood me. And I was like, yeah, that's what I've been missing this week. It wasn't because I was out of routine. It's because I, <laughs> I had my heart divided. I wasn't thinking it. I wasn't thinking it with the right mindset. And so then I preached this morning on the agape love of Jesus. And, and the people said I did well, but you know maybe they say that to everybody. Uh, but I don't care how the people thought I did because I had several people come up afterwards and they told me they never realized how much Jesus loved them. And that's all I wanted to hear. And that's all I wanted because God had fixed my heart. So. I think I had a little bit of an idol of the heart. And, and you can call it pride or, or fear of man. 
you know, I still wrestle with these things. But what we need to do is ask God to reveal these things to us. So then whenever we pray, we pray with the right motivations and deal with the idols of our hearts. In Matthew 6, that's a great antidote to those idols. Whenever we resolve within ourselves that we will do the Lord's will before we even know what it is, and when we resolve to seek God's kingdom first before our own, then all those other things that we're desiring will work themselves out. When our heart is in the wrong place, God might just give us what we want instead of what we need. But when our heart is in the right place, then God might not just give us what we want, He can give us exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond what we're even asking for. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that the senior discount at Denny's is only for those 55 and up.